The Pre-Med Year, session number 364. Hello, and welcome to The Pre-Med Years, where we believe that collaboration, not competition, is key to your success. I'm your host, Dr. Ryan Gray, and in this podcast, we share with you stories, encouragement, and information that you need to know to help guide you on your path to becoming a physician. And welcome to The Pre-Med Years Thank you for taking some time to join me today. This week, I have an amazing guest, someone I think I first heard about or read about, rather, on a CNN, an article that I saw on CNN about a physician who was knocking on death's door and basically had to find a cure for himself. And I reached out to this physician and I got him on the podcast. This week, I'm talking to Dr. David Fagenbaum a physician researcher now who is trying to cure his disease. He's written a whole book about this process called Chasing My Cure. And in this podcast, he talks about how he was a normal, healthy third-year medical student after playing college football. And all of a sudden, things took a turn for the worst. Stay tuned until the end of the podcast, where I will tell you how you can win one of five books that I bought and am giving away to you. Again, this is Dr. David Fagenbaum. You can find his book anywhere books are sold or at chasingmycure.com. David, welcome to the Premediers. Thanks for joining me. Thanks so much for having me. When did you realize you wanted to be a physician? I wanted to be a physician ever since I was pretty young. From the time that I was a teenager, I loved football and my dream was to play college football. And, and unfortunately, I experienced a number of injuries over the years. And, and with each injury, I um, got interested in sports medicine and, and maybe the idea of one day becoming an orth- orthopedic surgeon. My dad is actually also an orthopedic <laughs> surgeon. Um, and so all of those things, I think, kind of uh, combined to really make me want to potentially going to medicine from the time that I was a teenager. You're you're the stereotypical dad's doctor, so I think I want to follow in his footsteps. But you have you have that added uh extra bonus of being an athlete having those injuries. When when you were going down that path, were you like, wow, this is super like cliche, right? Dad's a doctor. I'm in sports. I want to be an orthopedic surgeon now. Did you have any of those fears going through this process? Like, are they going to take me seriously? Not really. Cause I was just like so passionate about exercise and diet and nutrition and sports medicine that I, I it really didn't kind of occur to me or, or bother me too much that you're exactly right. It is so cliche. The athlete father an orthopedic surgeon wanting to go into orthopedic surgery. But I mean, there was nothing else that I wanted to do more. Yeah. What was it about orthopedics and and the the medicine as you were getting injured and getting treated? What was it about that that process that you're like, oh, I, I need to do this? I like that there was kind of a start and a finish to do a lot of this stuff. It was, um, you know, when, when patients would come into my dad's office, they had a problem and then he fixed it and then they didn't have a problem. And uh, uh, unfortunately, I've learned from my uh, other exposures to medicine since then that for most in medicine and, and most medical challenges, there are not usually easy to define starts and easy to define ends. 
Yeah. So as as you were going through the process of medical school, where you're like, uh oh, like this is this is the exception, right? Of of broken bone fixed. See you later. Never going to see you again for that broken bone. Was there concern as you're going through this process? Like maybe this isn't what I wanted because because most of this doesn't have that clear path. Yeah. So I actually I learned that um, two weeks into college. So even before I started pre med, I, I mentioned I wanted to play college football. I ended up going to Georgetown to play football there. And just a couple of weeks after I got there, my life was completely turned upside down because my mom was diagnosed with brain cancer, mm. grade four terminal glioblastoma. And all of a sudden I went from this like, you know, football player who wanted to go into orthopedics and um, was, you know, passionate and interested in medicine to um, this son who was devastated about his mom's illness. And as I watched doctors take care of her and I watched her battle, I just immediately said, I don't want to do orthopedics. What I really want to do is study cancer. And I want to actually get involved in cancer research and also treating cancer patients. And so I went from, as we said before, kind of the most black and white area of medicine to now the most maybe nuanced area of medicine, um, because cancer changes over time. So even if you have a good idea for it at one point, you, you won't necessarily have a good idea for it in the future. How much of that kind of ignorance by, by the strongest definition of I, like, I can fix it. There's a broken bone. I can fix it. Where, did you bring into that news of, of your mom? We're like, well, just take it out and then it's done, yeah. right? Yeah, absolutely. I think that there was a real sense that, um, that, that I, I hoped and I believed um, that there must be a solution here, right? And, and maybe it was related to my dad's profession, but maybe it was also just related to being 18 years old and hopeful and naive that you know, there must be a solution for this. I mean, you might tell me that um, the average survival is a year, but my question to the doctors was, what's the longest anyone <laughs> has ever survived with this disease? And the doctor said five years. So I said, okay, my mom's going to live five years in a day. And I think that really kind of like, it, it encapsulates where I was. Um, and, and and I mean, it's, of course, I, I wanted more than anything um, for her to live uh, forever after this diagnosis. But I think I also... Um, uh, you know, it was just a very hopeful person um, and hopeful that, that, you know, there would be a miracle coming down the road. A lot of students going through this process will start medical school or start undergrad rather and, and have something like that happen to their life where mom, dad gets sick, injured, ill, die. Uh, they themselves get sick, ill, injured. Um, and it just tanks their GPA and, and a lot of students who are listening to this podcast now are probably coming back after walking away from this pre-med path. Cause they're like, there's no chance I can ever get back there, get back there. And, and then they realize they can, it might take a little bit longer. How much of what was going on with your mom affected you as a student? It affected me tremendously. I was devastated. When I was at school, I felt completely alone. I thought no one else was going through what I was going through. Um, at the same time that it was the hardest experience of my life, it also focused me in a way that I'd never been focused before, um, or maybe um, similar to the way that I'd previously been focused, uh, but this time on my pre-med classes and on starting a foundation in memory of my mom. I'm, my mom ended up passing away at the beginning of my sophomore year of college, about a year after her diagnosis. Mm. And I told her I would create an organization in her memory called AMF. Her name was Anne-Marie Feigenbaum. I didn't know what AMF would stand for, but I wanted it to, to be her initials. 
It went on to be to stand for ailing mothers and fathers. Now it's actively moving forward. And I, I told her I would create this organization and that I would become a doctor in her memory. And so I made these kind of two final promises to her. And that sent me back to Georgetown just on a complete mission to, to do the two things that I just said that I would do. And creating that organization enabled me to connect with other people coping with the illness or death of a loved one. Um, and as I said, it, it also really focused to me um, from a school perspective and saying, you know, this organic chemistry test is going to get me closer to that thing that I just promised to my mom. So I better study really, really hard for it. Yeah. And, um, and, and so, so I did. How do you balance everything that's going on in your personal life, the classroom and being a student athlete? It was, it was really hard. I mean, I think that, um, being a student athlete, uh, and having so much of your day dedicated to whatever sport you're playing, or if you're not a student athlete, maybe to the extracurriculars that you're doing sometimes, uh, in, in a weird way, it, it can, it can just force you to be incredibly regimented in a positive way with your time. You know, if you literally have no time whatsoever, um, then the time, the little bit of time that you do have, you really try to make the most of it. And so for me, it made me um, extremely regimented where I didn't do a single thing in all of college that wasn't on my iCal. <laughs> and there wasn't a 15 minute window in my four years of college that wasn't planned out and, and locked in before. And even social time was, was locked in. There was a special, <laughs> special block for like hanging out with friends. Nice. Yeah. I, I see it going both ways for students. That, that comment, right. Of, I had to be super regimented. And I hear it from, from pre-med parents where like, I know, right, I only have this amount of time to study because I have drop off the kids and pick up the kids and dinner of the kids. Yep. Uh, or the other way where, where students look at that, th those sh small windows of time and they feel completely defeated by them instead of uh, motivated by them going, okay, I need to be super effective. They go, that's only 15 minutes. What a waste. Yeah. I'm just going to Netflix and, and, and see yeah. what's, what's new. Uh, obviously Netflix wasn't around in, in its current form when you, when you and I were going through medical school or else maybe we wouldn't be here. I know I wouldn't be here. Um, how do you, how do you prevent going that other direction and going, you know what, or, or maybe you had those periods, but you were able to kind of course correct and get back into the efficient mode. How do you prevent the, the like, well, it's only 15, 20, 30 minutes. I might as well just put my feet up and relax. I deserve it. Yeah, it's a, it's a great question. I think you could really go either way. I think that, um, the David me now probably would have taken some more <laughs> breaks early on. I get kind of tired remembering the way that I, I operated and lived during college. Um, so I, I'm glad that was the, you know, the David at 18 to 22 years old and not, not the David in the, in his mid thirties. <laughs> yeah. There was a time where your own path was in question. Talk about when your kind of life got turned upside down personally, not, not even just from what happened with your mom, but, but your own health. Sure. So after college, I ended up going to England to study cancer prevention at Oxford, because this was part of my kind of uh, mission of, of taking on cancer. So I, I went to Oxford and then I came back to the States to Penn for medical school. And I was running full speed after wanting to become a clinical oncologist. I was um, really kind of uh, taking the steps that I thought I needed to achieve, you know, this, this promise that I'd made to my mom. Um, and then in the middle of my third year of medical school, I went from treating patients in the hospital to being a patient hospitalized in the ICU. I was experiencing multi-organ failure. Literally over the course of days, I went from totally healthy to kidney failure, liver failure, bone marrow shut down. I gained about 70 pounds of fluid. 
a retinal hemorrhage made me blind in my left eye. I was uh, getting daily transfusions. I was on a feeding tube. I was literally dying in the ICU. Um, and that went on at first for about 11 weeks with no diagnosis, um, just multi-organ failure being kept alive by medical technology with no idea what it was that was killing me. Um, eventually, a lymph node biopsy was done where I got the diagnosis of idiopathic multicentric Castleman disease. And the diagnosis really came just in time because a day after the diagnosis, I was so sick that the doctors told my family to say their goodbyes. And we did that. And a priest came in and administered my last rites to me. Fortunately, the diagnosis had happened the day before. And so I was able to get chemotherapy that day. And chemotherapy really kicked in just in time. And, and I survived, obviously. Um, but unfortunately, I would go on to have multiple relapses. And so uh, even just three weeks after having my last rites read to me, I was back in the hospital again with multi-organ failure. And for me, it was uh, it, it, it blew up and shook my world in so many ways, because not only was I now a patient with this deadly illness that was so poorly understood, but, but also my kind of belief and order in, in this idea that like there are drugs for diseases. And I knew that glioblastoma was particularly bad. And, and you know, watching my mom pass away taught me lessons about how much, how far we have to go in medicine. But, um, but at least for glioblastomas, there are literally hundreds of researchers and million, hundreds of millions of dollars being spent on glioblastoma research. All of a sudden, I was now in the world of rare disease where there were a handful of researchers and there were tens of thousands of dollars instead of hundreds of millions of dollars of research investment. And, um, and that was just shocking um, on its own. But really, the problem wasn't so much that research wasn't being done. The problem was that because research wasn't being done, there were very few treatment options. What does that feel like as a patient to go, like, am I just, I guess I'm not that important? <laughs> yeah, that's, I mean, I think that's the feeling. It's that, wow, because there are not many of us with this disease, I guess I'm just not that important. I think that's, that's probably a good way to describe it. There's so, there are 30 million Americans that have a rare disease. There's se- so one in 10 Americans has a rare disease. There are 7,000 rare diseases and 95% of those 7,000 rare diseases do not have a single FDA approved therapy. So, yep. so for most of us with a rare disease, and there actually are a lot of us around, around the world, <laughs> Most of us, we do feel like we've been forgotten because there are not treatments um, and there isn't uh, work being done. Yeah. Laying in uh, an ICU for 11 weeks. Hey, actually, I'm going to rewind. Well, well, I'll get to that question. A lot of students, I, I could, because I, I'm one of them, right? You say, okay, I have this, and I don't, I don't remember the whole name, Castleman syndrome or Castleman yep. disease. Um you said you had chemotherapy for it. And a lot of students, they're pre-meds, right? They're like, wait, chemotherapy, I relate to cancer. Yep. Talk about um, what exactly is Castleman's and, and how chemotherapy treats sure. something that's not cancer. Absolutely. So Castleman disease is a very poorly understood immune system disorder where the immune system basically becomes hyperactivated and then begins to attack your vital organs. So your immune system is supposed to protect you. Um, but unfortunately, in many diseases, many autoimmune diseases that, that most people will be very familiar with, the immune system can attack one part of your body. Well, in Castleman disease, there's almost kind of a full assault on your entire body. So your liver, your kidneys, your bone marrow, your heart, your lungs begin to shut down due to this what's called a cytokine storm. So cytokines, which are messengers that the immune system uses to communicate with one another, can actually cause major organ dysfunction um, when they're produced in high quantities. And so you get a cytokine storm get organ failure. Now, the reason that we treat it with chemotherapy is because it's called idiopathic 
multicentric Castleman disease, idiopathic, meaning we don't know what causes it. So we don't even know if it should be called an autoimmune disease or if it should be called a cancer. It acts kind of like lymphoma, which is which is a form of cancer. It also looks a little bit like an autoimmune disease. And so the, if you don't know what's causing it, then the only solution that we've had historically is to just use chemotherapy to just kill the whole immune system. If you don't know the problem, just wipe the whole thing out. <laughs> um, and that's what we've done historically for Castleman disease. Just nuke it. Start, start over. That's exactly right. Yeah. So I, I think in your mind, you should be proud be like all of these people with just regular autoimmune diseases. Like I have the strong immune system that just goes after everything. Yeah. Well, I, I <laughs> laugh when people say like, I want to take zinc to boost my immune system. I'm like, don't boost your immune system. Leave it the way it is. The last thing you want, I can tell you about a boosted immune system. Yeah. Avoid that. All right. So back to, to being in the ICU, right? You're this accomplished medical student third year at Penn going, look at me, I've, I've done everything right to this point. And, and a lot of students are in a similar situation where they're like, well, now what, right? I've, I've wrapped up my whole identity around being a medical student going on, becoming a physician. What's going through your mind at that point of whether or not you can even continue down this path? Yeah, I mean, medical school and becoming a doctor was really kind of the, the, the last thing that I was worried about. Survival was really the number one thing on my mind. I mean, I was literally dying and uh, no one knew what, what was stopping it. So um, I did. I do remember mourning the idea that, oh my gosh, I've done all this training. I did all this in order to honor my mom's memory and to make a difference. And I'm not going to actually make any difference in medicine. Um, I will die before I ever get the chance to treat my first patient. I mean, I'd been a medical student on clinical wards, but obviously wasn't making any of the major decisions that I'd, I'd wanted and, and dreamed of being able to make. And so I, I definitely mourned that. But for me, it was much more um, my mortality and uh, the fact that I, I wouldn't get married to my girlfriend at the time, that I wouldn't be able to have children, that I wouldn't be able to make memories in the future. Um, that's what really was hitting me in the ICU. Once you get the diagnosis and chemotherapy is started and it looks like potentially you're going to come back from this uh, or at least not die, right? Yes, at, exactly. In that moment. Um what what sort of questions, right? Because the the mortality question is then potentially shelved for a little bit. Are are you then going, okay, well, if I can't go on to medical school, if the stress of being a physician maybe triggered this, or maybe I should look at something else, what what's going through your mind then? Yeah. So as soon as I started to get better with chemo, the main thing on my mind was I need to find an expert. I need to find out who is the person that knows more than anyone else in the world about Castleman disease, because I knew that my medical training was on hold until I could get this disease under control. And so I, I found out the world's expert is in Little Rock, Arkansas. His name is Fritz Van Rie. He's a multiple myeloma expert. Uh, Castleman disease, though we don't define it as a cancer, actually has a lot in common with multiple myeloma. So it's primarily treated by multiple myeloma doctors. So I went to see Fritz. And while I was out there, I had a major relapse despite the chemotherapy. And I then spent seven weeks hospitalized in his institution. Um, again, on life support, multi-organ failure, feeding tubes, transfusions, kind of everything you could imagine. This time, rather than just getting one chemotherapy, they gave me seven chemotherapies at once, a combination that's called VDTACE-R. And that combination um, was able to basically completely obliterate my entire immune system and save my life. 
Um, but just to give a perspective on how sick I was, I actually felt better with every dose of chemotherapy because my immune system was, was doing um, so much harm to my body. And so for me, it was find the expert, get this thing under control before I can even worry about going back to medical school. And once I found him and he saved my life at that stage, he started me on a drug that was undergoing a clinical trial. It was the first ever randomized controlled trial um, to ever be done for my disease, idiopathic MCD. And I was started on the drug and I was actually able to return to medical school after about one year on medical leave. Um, so six months hospitalized, six months recovering on this drug, hopeful that maybe this drug would keep me in remission and, um, and that I could get back to my you know, previous plans. And, and that's actually what I did. I came back to Penn Med and I jumped right back on the oncology uh, train and, and just you know, kept moving forward, hoping that this disease was, would be a distant memory. How was the reception from the medical school after needing to take that leave? I, I've heard an unfortunate horror stories from students who need to take leave in one form or another from medical school, and they just it's not received very well. How how was that received from Penn? It was it was well received in my case. Um, the administration, many of them had seen me in the ICU, and so they saw the state that I was in. My friends con- uh, visited me constantly. My classmates from Penn Med, so it was it was something where they could physically see it. I can I can imagine. I've also heard not so great stories of, of medical students when they have medical issues. Um, that that yes, they they don't always have the most support. In my case, you know, they could physically see me. And they knew where I was. They they you know um, knew the medical challenges and they heard you know what my BUN levels were, and my <laughs> creatinine was. And those those sort of things you know, made sense to them. Oh, wow. He's really, really sick. Mm. Interesting. Uh, yeah. Interesting. I was, I was going to go a different route when you said they, they could really see you, but, um, from a, from a residency standpoint, a lot of students are concerned whether uh, in their pre-med path or in medical school, if they're going to need to take any sort of breaks or anything, the question will come when residency rolls around, how are the residency program directors going to view the need to take time off and, and, mm-hmm. and your stability during residency? Did you find yep. any hesitation in programs? I think I probably would have. Um, but in, in my case, I, I took a very non-traditional route from where I was to where I am today. And so uh, I was a healthy third-year medical student. I was deathly ill. I spent a year on medical leave. And then I was back, as I mentioned, to medical school. And unfortunately, I relapsed on that drug. You know, I when I got back to medical school, I thought, you know, maybe I can go back to my old plan and that I would go into internal medicine. I would do oncology. But when I relapsed on the only drug in development for my disease, I realized I, if I wanted to survive, I would need to dedicate the rest of my life, however long that may be, to trying to identify a treatment for myself. And so that's what I started doing. No one was conducting active research at Penn, but someone gave me some lab space that I could start doing experiments in my samples. And I started a foundation called the Castleman Disease Collaborative Network with the goal of accelerating research on an international scale. And so I dove full speed in because I realized I couldn't just, I could no longer just like hope that someone somewhere would figure out a solution for my disease. And I could just go back to medical school and go back to training. I talk about this really extensively in my book. This is like the turning point. It's like the moment from saying like, I can no longer, the book's kind of all about hope and and this idea that I could no longer just hope someone else somewhere would figure this out. The kind of hoping I did for my mom didn't work out. And I realized it wouldn't work for me if I just kept hoping. And so I turned my hope into action. I started to push forward the science. And, and I really, at that stage, decided that 
I may go to residency in the future, but for now, all I need to think about and all I can think about is identifying a treatment and a cure for my disease. Um, unfortunately, despite a lot of progress, I relapsed again about a year later, um, right after I finished, I graduated from medical school. Um, and I, around that time, I decided I was going to do an MBA at Warden. So I realized that a lot of the challenges that I was facing um, in this fight against Castleman disease were really organizational problems, people not collaborating, um, lack of uh, uh, there being a clear strategy and efficient use of samples, things that were kind of business problems. And so I also knew that if I did an MBA, that would give me some more time to keep doing the lab work that I was doing. And so I relapsed. And um, that's when I um, really dove into my data because I survived again, thanks to seven age chemotherapy. Um, but that's when I dove into my data and began looking for a signal that maybe could um, uh, inspire trying a drug that maybe had never been used for my disease. I'd run out of all treatments that had been used. And going through data after data after data on um, day after day after day, um, I ended up finding a signal that suggested to me that a particular communication line in the immune system called the mTOR pathway was active. And there's an mTOR inhibitor called serolimus. It's been uh, approved for 25 years uh, for kidney transplantation. And I um, thought that maybe it could work. And so I talked to my doctors and we decided to try me as the first patient ever with my disease to be treated with serolimus. And that was five and a half years ago. And so despite nearly dying five times in the first three and a half years, now it's been five and a half years that I've been in remission. And as I am in a remission and I'm, I'm healthy, I've decided to use this time to continue to push forward the science for my disease. So I ended up, rather than doing a residency after business school, I ended up taking a research faculty position at UPenn where I could continue to build out and grow my lab. Um, and now I run a translational research lab that does basic science research, translational, and also clinical research. So I never did apply to a residency program. That's a long answer. Yeah. That I never did apply to a residency program, um, but that I, I'm so thrilled um, about where I am right now. You talked about your book and how it's all about hope. And that's at the core of this podcast is hope for students who have been told by an advisor somewhere, a mentor somewhere, a family member somewhere that they can never get into medical school. And and through this podcast and through hard work, they finally figure out a way to get in. From, from that mindset, right? Everything that you've been through, even if it wasn't the, the struggle of getting into medical school, right? Your struggle is survival, right? Of living and, and taking each sliver of hope and turning it into action for the pre-med student listening to this, what words of wisdom or encouragement would you have for, for, uh, for them to, to take their slivers of hope and turn it into action towards getting to their goal of, be, of getting into medical school? I think you, you said it so well. I mean, I think that so often when we're in our training and the goal of going to medical school, um, there's just kind of letdown and setback after setback, tough exams, uh, challenging teachers, courses. And um, I agree, it can feel like kind of this uh, daunting journey of, of so many no's uh, with very few yeses. And I think that um, what I've learned from my journey is that um, whatever that is that we're hoping for and whatever the things are that we're praying for or wishing for, that that should really drive our action. And so if if we really at our core um, want to become a doctor or go into medicine or research, um, then that should really drive our actions. And, and maybe when there is that decision between 15 minutes of Netflix and 15 minutes of studying, 
that we can say, what am I hoping for? And will the 15 minutes of Netflix get me closer to that that I'm hoping for? And that's not to say that like we should all be robots and we should never watch <laughs> Netflix and we should never be happy because, you know, what's the point of living if you're not also living? Um, but I think that I do think it's important to remember that, like, there is no sort of, at least in my opinion, um, there is no sort of like you deserve it. So you're going to get into medical school or like my mom deserves a cure. So she's going to get one or I deserve a cure. So I'm just going to get it. Um, the things that we get and the things that happen, at least in my experience, don't happen because one of us worked hard. So there was some sort of grand um, determinant that it was deserved. It's actually there are many people who get things we don't deserve and people who don't get things we do deserve. And so I think that recognizing that if we're hoping for something and praying for something and wishing for something, um, then we should do everything we can to make that thing actually become a reality, which generally um, is going to require action. It's going to require studying. It's going to require doing. It's going to require working in your evenings, working in your weekends um, uh, to try to make that thing reality. Your book, Chasing My Cure, just the the title of it, it for a lot of students listening to this and and how you talked about kind of the the institutional challenges of of different hospitals and different teams working together to try to find these these cures. The the student coming into this is they're bright-eyed and bushy-tailed and looking at everything through rose-colored glasses and every yep. other thing that we want to say about medicine. But being on, on this side of it as a patient trying to find your own cure, uh, as a physician, um, how can you help a student stay motivated through this process that, that typically students come out super jaded and, and already down on the process. And, and uh, for someone like yourself, right, you've, you've seen the, the quote bad side of medicine where, where yep. things aren't getting done because of whatever reason. Uh, and then for you as well, right. I'm, I'm sure uh, the, the process of going through chemotherapy uh, what five times in three years probably wasn't the cheapest uh, thing in our current healthcare system. How how do you motivate a student or 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 give them the encouragement that yes, there are a lot of things that need to be improved in the system, but in the end, it's it's worth it. This is such a great question and so important. You know, when I think about the way you described medical students on on their first day of medical school, and, and I felt this exact same way my first day of medical school, um, you are very hopeful and optimistic and um, in some ways naive. And um, I think that unfortunately, during medical school, there's kind of four years of like, kind of ripping down the hopefulness, <laughs> ripping down the optimism and the naivety. And it, it just kind of by the time you're done with your four years, you went from being like, the most optimistic person, maybe of all your friend group is like, you know, dreaming of cures and treatments and helping patients to maybe the, the least, um, the least hopeful because of, of what we see during medical school. Um, and then residency is kind of like, I think maybe it, you get drilled down even further um, when it, on that scale of hopefulness. But I think that throughout it, um, we are constantly reminded and we're giving, given kind of glimpses. Uh, you talked about slivers of hope earlier for these pre-med students. I think we get these glimpses of hope during our training and during residency that keeps it kind of all in perspective and makes it all worthwhile. It's when we do see that drug actually work for the patient that we didn't know if it was going to work, where we do see the procedure get the patient out of the hospital. 
And, and so even though we are becoming more realistic and recognizing um, kind of the, the boundaries of medicine, I think when you go into medicine, you have a sense that there are no boundaries to medicine, that medicine can cure all, treat all, and that medicine is all powerful. And as you go through your training, you recognize the limits of medication or of medicine, the boundaries of medicine. But, but then you get to see little, there's little glimmers where you get to see where maybe you thought there was a boundary. You thought that this is the best we could do, but you actually broke through the boundary and a patient did better um, than, than maybe you expected them to do. And I think that um, kind of staying focused on those highs and those, um, those little doses or slivers of hope, as you said, I think is, is really important uh, for anyone uh, going through their medical training. Now, you've had a very unique perspective being on both sides uh, as a uh, med school graduate, as a very sick patient, as the family member of a sick patient. For the, the student listening to this, the pre-med student listening to this, what one thing would you recommend they do when interacting with patients and interacting with family members to to really make that experience the best possible? You know, I think in your question, I think there's a bit of the answer. And that's that during medical school, we're not really taught about interacting with family members and loved ones beyond the patient. It's kind of like, how do you treat the patient? It's kind of um, solely focused on the patient. But your question was, how do you treat and interact with the patient and their family? I think that's just kind of the first lesson is that don't forget that there actually is this entire community of family members and friends that you don't see every day that are very much affected by your patient's illness and that are very much a part of their journey. And so interacting with them, bringing them into the loop, um, making sure that they feel empowered to share with you what what they think is going on. Um, in, in my book, I talk about a few observations that we made early on in my case. And those observations actually ended up being pretty critical to me identifying this drug for myself years later. Observations that that my doctors, not because they didn't want to listen to me, but because they didn't think that the th- observations I was making were necessarily going to be important. And at the time, they, they probably weren't important. But I think that there are observations that family members and patients will make um, that we as care providers need to make sure that we listen to. Where can people find your book? Sure. Chasing My Cure is available everywhere books are sold, um, uh, including your local bookstore and Amazon. Um, I have been uh, spending the last couple months sharing and spreading the word about Chasing My Cure. Uh, Not only is it a book about what I learned about life from nearly dying five times, um, lessons I hope to share with the world, but it's also uh, a perspective that medical students, pre-med students, patients, physicians, researchers. It's, it's a, I guess, a, a number of perspectives pulled into one place into our healthcare system and into medical training perspectives that I think that a young pre-med student or a medical student um, could be really interested in reading and, and kind of getting an idea for, for what's it really going to be like and, and what are some of the things that I can expect to see um, when I start taking care of patients. All right. Again, Dr. David Fagenbaum, Chasing My Cure. I'm going to let you know how you can win one of five copies of this book that I went on Amazon and bought myself. Go on to Instagram, go on to Twitter, post a picture of you listening to this podcast, tag myself, tag Dr. David Fagenbaum. You can find him. You spell his last name F-A-J-G-E-N-B-A-U-M. Tag him, tag me. 
Use the hashtag. Use the hashtag. Chasing my cure. And I will pick five lucky winners from Twitter and Instagram posting those pictures of listening to this episode, tagging us as you can in those two apps, and I'll send you a book. I hope you have a great week. I hope you enjoyed this episode. I hope it gave you some motivation that no matter what you are going through, you can continue down this journey and become a physician or do whatever you want. That's the ultimate goal, to be able to do what you want, no matter what lies in your way. Hope you have a great week. We'll see you next time here on The Pre-Med Years. This is MedEd Media.